the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I'd like to start off the show by wishing you a very healthy, happy 2006. And um, we are today um, pretty much just getting back from uh, our holiday celebrations, including the new year. And I thought that, first of all, I was noticing that this year, this new year seemed to be a much more contemplative kind of New Year's than I have seen in quite a while, where I think people were not really um, so much uh, involved in thinking about, well, traveling, certainly not, not as much as, as in past years, um, not as much doing things externally, you know, party, I'm sure there were lots of partying, hardying people, but... Um, there were a lot of people who were staying home or, or staying with friends, um, sharing the evening with friends and the next day, and um, thinking about things. And it's very unusual that we take time out. We should be doing this more. This is a good thing. But um, I think that I was trying to think about why this is. And I think that probably um, the events of the last year and actually the last years before that, starting with 9-11 and continuing with um, disasters uh, that we haven't seen before. Last year, of course, there, were, there was the af- aftermath of the tsunami that we were dealing with in 2005. Um, there was the terrorist attack in London on July 7th. And there was Hurricane Katrina, just to name a few. And I think that it is causing us, or at least the new year, caused us to stop and think about um, not only the end of 2005 and the beginning of 2006, but the end of life and the beginning of life. And I thought that um, we this would be a good uh, topic for us to continue thinking about today as, as it would be good to do. <laughs> not just on the new year and special occasions, but um, to sort of think more about this on a daily basis. And my guest um, is certainly someone who does a lot of thinking and writing and speaking about this. His name is Wesley Smith, and he is the author or co-author of 11 books, most of which were on this subject. Just to give you some examples, uh, there. He has written The Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America, and Forced Exit, The Slippery Slope from Assisted Suicide to Legalized Murder. Those are on one end. And on the other end, his, the book that he's currently working on, um, I'm not sure if it's out yet, but he'll tell us, The Consumer's Guide to Brave New World, which um, looks at things like human cloning, stem cell therapies, and genetic engineering. 
So we're going to cover the whole gamut of death and life for you today. <laughs> Isn't that right, Wesley? Sounds like a Woody Allen movie, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> well, why don't we why don't we start since um, we're going symbolically here from the end of 2005? Why don't we start with death? And before the show, you and I were chatting, and we both um, realized that we had been in uh, contact with chats with. Um, the family of Terry Schiavo, the Schindlers, and trying to, that we were both on the same side, their side, trying to um, stop what ultimately happened, which I guess is a lot of what you wrote about in Forced Exit the Slippery Slope from Assisted Suicide to Legalized Murder, which indeed that certainly seemed to be. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I was uh, deeply involved uh, with this case on an informal uh, advisory capacity, and as a public advocate, I wrote quite a few articles about the case, mostly in the Weekly Standard, uh, and they're all available on my website at www.wesleyjsmith.com, and go into the blog section and in the articles archive. But not now. First, no, listen no. To Wesley. <laughs> listen, to the, listen to the radio show. Uh, the um, the thing that struck me most about that case was number one how many people were willing to determine that a helpless woman had a life not worth living and turn their backs on her pure humanity? Uh, I think that getting past the idea of this is what she would want, because, I mean, please, the evidence of what she would want was when she was a mid-20-year-old in casual conversation, supposedly with her husband and her husband's family, before people were taking away feeding tubes in hospitals where uh, if there had been any discussion at all, it would have been about whether to have be hooked up to machines in an ICU with respirators yes. and so forth. I mean, the evidence was weak. Uh, at best, the evidence was weak. And so we have to get down to the real issue, and that is in bioethics. There are a lot of uh, very mainstream and very uh, influential people saying that people like Terry Schiavo should not be considered human. They don't use the word human any because of the species issue, but they call it personhood, and so it's called personhood theory. And under this belief system, which is challenging uh, our traditional belief in the equality of all human life without judging its quality, uh, uh, if you do not have sufficient cognitive capacities, you are deemed a non-person, and that makes you, uh, loses, you lose the right to life, and you even lose the right to bodily integrity. Uh, so believe it or not, I was having a debate on court TV with a fellow named Bill Allen, who's a bioethicist from Florida, uh, and I asked him if he thought Terry was a person. He said no, hmm. uh, and this was an online debate, uh, real time. And then I said, should uh, she be able to be harvested for her organs? And he said yes, hmm. that her organs should be able to be distributed just like her property, which is really ironic because Michael Schiavo uh, would not be allowed to get anywhere near her property because of conflicts of interest, but he was certainly able to make her dead, wasn't he, through hmm. a court order? Hmm. Yes, that is interesting. Can we go back to something you said, though, that I didn't quite understand? Why is it that um, it's called personhood instead of human? Sure. What the, the question of the 21st century, a lot of people don't know it yet, but it's really coming to the, fro, uh, to the fore in quite a few areas, uh, is whether human life has intrinsic value simply and merely because it is human. This is an objective view that at least all born humans uh, are deemed to have equal moral worth. We don't measure whether somebody has greater or lesser cognitive capacity or physical abilities and so forth. If you're human and you're born, <clears throat> you are equal. 
that is under profound assault right now in bioethics. Uh, bioethicists say uh, quite frequently, the mainstream view, in fact, it's not every bioethicist, but it's certainly the predominant view at Harvard, Princeton. Uh, you may have heard of Peter Singer at Princeton. This is his view uh, and others, and that is this, that to say that human life has ultimate value simply and merely because it is human is speciesist. That is, it is discrimination against animals, and it is not rational. It is supposedly based in some outmoded religious view. Therefore, we have to come up with rational reasons to value a life, and we must value lives under the same criteria. That is, you'll judge a redwood tree, you might judge a rock, you judge a dog, you judge a human under the same criteria. And the criteria that's been established uh, in bioethics uh, that's different in animal liberation, which is a, has a similar problem, but in bioethics, it's whether you are or not a, quote, person. And if you are a person, uh, it is deemed, for example, if you're self-aware over time. That is, if you have a sense of futurity and if you have a sense of memory <clears throat> and you're self-aware, then you're a person and that gives you value. Peter Singer of Princeton, who is the most, world's most famous bioethicist, by the way, uh, says that, uh, for example, somebody like Terry Shiva would not be a person because of her cognitive impairments, which were profound. But he would say that a chimpanzee, a dog, an elephant would be persons because of their capacities, and therefore they would have higher value than Terry Schiavo. And indeed, uh, Peter Singer in psych Psychology Today a few years ago, and I cite this in Culture of Death, seriously proposed that the uh, instead of using chimpanzees uh, to help develop the hepatitis vaccines, we should have used people in vegetative states. Oh, my God. Uh, this is really coming down the line. There are books being written on this and so forth. Uh, another approach uh, is uh, whether or not you can value your own life. But whatever approach it is, which is still under discussion, the predominant belief among the, the elite professors at the major universities, the people who are teaching the doctors of tomorrow, the nurses of tomorrow, the government leaders of tomorrow, the business leaders of tomorrow, is that there is a distinction to be made between a human and a person. And that persons, only persons have what you and I would call human rights. That so-called human non-persons do not. And therefore, people like all unborn life uh, is not a person. Newborn infants are not deemed persons because they're not self-aware over time. And that's why Peter Singer is world famous or infamous for being the uh, premier supporter of infanticide. He believes that parents should have a year within which to keep or kill their babies. What? He does, no question about it. To do a Google search of Peter Singer. Uh, and he's at Princeton University, at, at, at the most prestigious university in this country, in one of the most prestigious bioethics chairs at the Center for Human Values, which is misnamed with him in it. But, uh, really? but, this, but is... this isn't fringe. And what I have to tell you, Doctor, this is not fringe thinking. There are books written on it. Uh, there is uh, the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal has had personhood theories. That's from uh, Georgetown. This is major, major advocacy, and it is affecting the way uh, our healthcare system operates and the way we look at the sickest and most vulnerable patients among us. And this, of course, is what I wrote in Culture of Death, and it was uh, uh, named Best Health Book of the Year for 2003, I guess it was. This is really rather frightening. <laughs> yes, it is frightening, and trying to get attention to it is difficult because the mainstream media is basically addicted to credentials. And so when somebody, a big bioethicist, comes on television and mm. says, well, Terry Schiavo shouldn't live, she should be dehydrated to death, only they won't use that term, uh, 
you have to ask, where does that view come from? And that's the question that's never asked. So a lot of people think, well, they certainly believed in the sanctity and equality of human life. That's the basic philosophy of the United States. But they don't. And uh, and I think I expose it quite well in a lot of my articles and my uh, books. And, uh, in fact, this is a very crucial and urgent debate we're having as a society because we have not become the quality of life ethic, but we are not still the equality or sanctity of life ethic. There is a battle, a fundamental contest for which is the basic um, philosophy that will judge the healthcare ethics, the medical ethics, the research ethics of the United States of America. Just take a look at Ian Wilmot. Ian Wilmot, who cloned Dolly the Sheep, is now urging, and I'll have a piece on this out, I think, in tomorrow's Daily Standard or the next day, he is urging that dying people be used as so many lab rats uh, for embryonic stem cell research, even though they're not really ready for testing in humans because they're not safe. So we start to look at some of us as commodities to be mm-hmm. used instead of people to be loved unconditionally. Wow. <laughs> I This is really, I mean, I'm certainly, obviously it points out the need for all of your work to bring attention to this because... Um, uh, I, 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 there's, I certainly wasn't aware that it had gotten this uh, far down the line. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about why you think this might be. I mean, what the real motivation is for some of this uh, crazy thinking. If someone had come to Bellevue when I was training there um, with these theories, we would have put it, locked them up. <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, we'll continue this uh, very fascinating discussion with Wesley Smith who was an attorney, by the way, before he stopped practicing in 1985 to pursue a career in writing and public advocacy, and obviously it's very needed. We're just uh, beginning to touch on some of the things that he has been uh, writing and talking about. So you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and uh, please stay with us. Informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Information you need, when you need it. VoiceAmerica.com 
Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo, we've got three authors and one book. No, they didn't all write the same book. They have three stories inside of one book. If you're a writer of short fiction that considers yourself underpublished, take a listen to what we've got to say. All these folks are inside of L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 2005, and there's information how you can get in next year. That's this week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo. Every Saturday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet Talk Radio, you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about life and death issues, or I should say death and life, because we're uh, looking at the metaphor of moving from the end of 2005 to the beginning of 2006. And my guest has had some really fascinating things to say so far. And it's obviously just the uh, tip of the iceberg, since he has been the author or co-author of 11 books, some award-winning books. Uh, Wesley Smith, he is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute of Seattle. And um, we've been talking before the break about uh, what is what some of the um, thinking is uh, amongst bioethicists in regard to who should live and who should die, basically. And uh, as I was saying to him during the break, it's, it sounds to me like it's people playing God. Well, I think there's <clears throat> there's a hubris in it for sure, and I think there's an arrogance, and and I think there's this idea that uh, to believe uh, in what Jefferson called the self-evident truths of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is passe and somehow steeped in religion. But you know, it really isn't. Well, certainly there are, are religious Judeo-Christian views uh, supporting this. That's also a philosophy. It's not necessarily a faith. And uh, if you look at the supporting philosophy, what? Uh, supporting the equal worth of all uh-huh. human life, yeah. and that's been the, the goal to which we've been striving for hundreds, if not more, of years, we have not yet attained there. And what I find so alarming is as we are actually finally beginning to cast aside this idea that some races are better than other races, yeah. or that uh, you know men are, are more are superior to women, things of that sort. Now we're beginning to turn, at least among the elite and the intelligentsia in the, in the medical uh, uh, arena, we're turning back on ourselves and saying, well, yes, these, these issues of equality are important, but they don't necessarily apply to people like Ronald Reagan who had, during his late-stage Alzheimer's because he's lost his personhood. He's lost those things that make a human being uh, truly human or a person. And, and what is really disturbing about this is two th- are two things actually two things are disturbing. Number one is that they would do away with an objective standard. 
That is, if you're human, you're equal. That's an objective standard. You don't need philosophers to expound for hours on end about what makes life worth living or what makes a human being uh, uh, something special. It's just an intrinsic, inherent trait of equality. But in, but if we say no, and that we're not going to accept the objective approach, then who lives, who dies, who has value, who doesn't, becomes a matter of political power, doesn't it? Who has the right, who has the power, who is given the ability to decide these questions? Mm-hmm. And today you've got the intellectual saying what matters is intellectualism, not in the sense mm-hmm. of being able to read high uh, high philosophy, but in the sense of cognitive capacities. In the past, we've had uh, race, as I said. In the past, we've had the concept if you were uh, unable to do physical work because of disabilities, you were somehow less, uh, and so forth. And to turn away from the objective standard that protects everybody to a subjective standard that leaves the most weak and vulnerable among us, particularly subject to oppression, exploitation, and commodification, if you start thinking about... Uh, uh, some of the arguments to redefine death, for example, uh, which uh, has been reported in The Lancet, it's been reported in uh, Critical Care Medicine, uh, which is the uh, journal for the intensive care docs, where they specifically urge that people like Terry Shad will be available for organ procurement, either as a way of uh, redefining death to include a, a diagnosis of persistent vegetative state, which of course isn't death, but it's turning death from a biological issue to a sociological issue. Uh, or, um, as uh, critical care medicine did, uh, saying, well, let's just do away with the dead donor rule and allow some people who are not yet dead to be harvested, particularly if they have cognitive devast- devastating cognitive conditions. And it's very concerning. But you also see it, uh, Carol, in the cloning issue, where human cloners for therapeutic cloning say, we should be able to create human life through cloning and even through fertilization so that we can destroy and exploit those, those nascent lives for their body parts. Well, one doesn't have to think uh, that an embryo or a fetus is, is, um, is necessarily uh, uh, equal to a five-year-old child to say, wait a second, this is human life. The respect we owe all human lives prevent us from using it as an object. Uh, prevent us from looking mm-hmm. at, uh, for example, a fetus as a commodity to be harvested, uh, say, for example, fetal farming, which, uh, I hate to tell you this, would be legal in the state of New Jersey if the fetus was a cloned fetus. Hmm. Even they already have laws like well, that. Well, New Jersey has legalized human cloning, that's somatic cell nuclear transfer. Uh, that's the same procedure that was used to make Dolly the sheep. Mm-hmm. New Jersey did mm-hmm. not outlaw implantation into a real or artificial or animal womb permits gestation through the ninth month and only prohibits and makes a felony what they call the cloning of a human being, which is defined as getting through to, through the birth process into the newborn state. Mm. This means that if you clone, ge- uh, impregnate, and gestate through the ninth month but do not allow that fetus to be born and you, let's say, uh, aborted for use in, in organ procurement mm. or uh, medical testing, you will not have broken the law in New Jersey. Mm. I keep pointing this out to media. I keep mentioning it on the radio. It bounces off people's heads because they don't think it will happen. They can't believe it's real. Yeah. But in the animal studies, we've already seen advanced cell technology doing um, uh, research in cloning with cows in which they created a cow embryo. They implanted that cow embryo. They gestated it uh, to the early fetal stages. They aborted. They took the kidneys. 
They then took the the, uh, the primordial kidneys and did a, a skin graft on the cow whose DNA was used to make the cloned embryo to see whether the tissue would reject. It did not. To see whether it would produce urine, it did. And this was touted in the media as a success for therapeutic cloning. What it really was was a success for fetal, cloned fetal farming. And that same experiment, if done in humans, would be legal in New Jersey. People don't believe it. People don't want to see it, but it's there. It's real. And it was not an accident because uh, before this law was passed, four members of the President's Council on Bioethics, William Hurlbut, Carlos Lobos, Marianne Glendon, and Robert George of Princeton, wrote a letter to then-Governor McGreevy and said, this legislation would authorize cloned fetal farming. They could have amended the legislation to say, well, oops, we forgot to outlaw implantation, which would have meant that the cloned embryo would have remained in a dish. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. Instead, they took it off the floor when the heat got hot, and when the, uh, after the 2003 election, and there was a one-week rump session, they sh rushed it back on the floor, passed it before anybody could object, and Governor McGreevy signed it in 2004 before he resigned, and it is now the law of New Jersey. Identical legislation was introduced in Texas to show it wasn't an anomaly. Legislation differently worded, but which would have provided again for fetal farming, cloned fetal farming, has been introduced in Minnesota, Washington State, Illinois, Maryland, Delaware, that I can think of off the top of my head. You know, <laughs> it does seem like a, uh, a science fiction movie. I mean, I can, un you know, I think people have a hard time grasping this. One, because it does seem like science fiction. Right. It seems like an episode of The Twilight Zone or right. a series, <laughs> a mini-series from The Twilight Zone. But also, you know, a lot of these words and techniques and all of that, uh, stems, all the different kinds of stem cells, all the different, you know, it, it gets very um, uh, complicated. And you have to be really determined. It doesn't fit into a sound bite very easily. No, it doesn't, and that's why it, you, you won't see it on television because it takes... For example, that's why I like talk radio so much. We have an hour on your show to explore these issues in depth in a way that you can't do in 30-second soundbites. Right. And, and the other reason a lot of this doesn't get covered is that the mainstream media uh, often will, will not report these things because they look, they've taken sides, particularly in the biotechnology debates. Uh, I'm sure you saw the reporting about the Terry Schiavo case. What a disaster. I mean, it was well, I know. journalistic malpractice in the extreme. Absolutely. I, I was involved with the family in terms of um, I was going to be testifying. Oh, I had asked to be an expert witness to testify because I had um, uh, concluded from having done a radio interview with the father, just like this, but then we continued talking afterwards. Um, when the father was talking and I had asked about Terry's childhood and all of that and his, her relationship with her husband, I'm um, just, you know, it, being interested as a psychiatrist in trying to understand who she was personality-wise, right. um, he said various things that just were um, uh, red flags because I've written a book called Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave oh, Them. Oh, I've heard of that book. And one of the types, um, is the How about why women don't like good guys? Well, yes. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my implication. <laughs> um, and one of the types, you know, the abusive type, the Prince of Darkness, I called him, was really uh, what these red flags were fitting into. And he didn't know. He wasn't saying these things on purpose. You know, he hadn't read my book. 
and he didn't really know that that certain um, experiences or stories that he was telling about fit into that category. But in any case, that was what I was going to be testifying about as to um, how it was likely that her husband had committed the act that put her in this state and had been hiding various bits and pieces of information about her medical condition over the years, and how can you then listen to him as far in a court of law since he was obviously prejudiced to be doing, to be saying things the way that would help him to get rid of her and to get the remainder of her money. And also just to be finished with, um, you know, that whole obligation since he had moved on with another woman and two children. So that was my connection. But when we come back, I, I would like to talk about, I mean, you've just uh, given us a feast of things to talk about here. And I'd like to try to, um, understand or, or ask you what you think are the political um, and sociological and whatever other reasons you think behind uh, these laws and behind these these bioethicists, why am I having growl? Ethicists, thank you, um, to, to make these kinds of uh, uh, propositions and to try to make these things and, and make these succeed in making these things public policy. There has to be, you know, various motives behind it, and, and um, I'd like to try to, to look at that when we come back. So, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want the, uh, the break. We do have to go to break. I do hear the music. When we come back, we're going to be talking again with my guest, Wesley Smith, the author of uh, and co-author of 11 books, uh, having to do with a lot of bioethical issues. And um, Really, these are things that we each need very much to know much more about, even though some of these things seem complicated at the beginning. It obviously behooves us to find out about them in more detail because uh, it's going to affect our lives. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. When we come back, we'll be talking more about life and death issues. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Basile, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on voiceamerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific time for crust busting your way to an awesome life. 
Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard's Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard's Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard's Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Wesley J. Smith. Um, he is an author and activist trying to bring uh, the information down from these ivory towers where people seem to be... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think they need some psychiatrists, more psychiatrists in these ivory towers uh, to, try to, under- to try to get the people to understand why they're thinking this way. Um, but anyway, he's trying to make these things more uh, known to the general population who I think uh, would be appalled, as I'm sure many of you are who are listening to this. So, Wesley, um, let's look at why why you think, besides um, uh, temporary or, well, besides some insanity raging through the departments, um, you know, it, it's the first, the first um, one of the first, ideas or motivations that occurs to me is that these people in their ivory towers are getting older and approaching death and approaching illness and um, are really thinking rather selfishly and narcissistically about what they are going to need to sustain life, you know, the, the, the kind of research uh, or being able to harvest organs when theirs are failing, for example, um, and being able to prolong their life with all of this kind of research rather than caring about how it's affecting, how it's going to affect society in general. Uh, there's some of that. I think some of it has to do with uh, they're, they're worried about uh, the resource issues, money issues. Uh, a lot of them also, as they support the idea of not keeping people like Terry Schiavo alive, uh, want health care rationing. Uh, which is a, a polite term for dis- medical discrimination against people who need health care the most. Uh, and the idea is what they call distributive justice, that is we have people who are uninsured in this society and we have to bring them into coverage, which means we may have to exclude some people uh, who uh, who are expensive. But that's uh, I, I'm not denying that we need to certainly 
reform our health care system, and there are people who do not have health insurance who we need to find ways to uh, improve on that issue. But this idea of health care rationing uh, and excluding the, the most disabled and ill among us is a way of leaving people by the side of the trail. Well, yes. I mean, as, as you were saying before about that our society has become, and in a lot of ways I think too politically correct, but and and it's and this would be an example. You know, we don't want to sh- we don't want to let let the poor suffer who um, who are going to complain about not having um, insurance coverage, uh, you know, federal or state insurance coverage. But at the same time, it's okay to let people like Terry Schiavo or people who uh, happen to fall into the wrong hands uh, to let them suffer. It is discrimination. It's just using a different set of criteria. Yeah, I agree with you, and and it, it also gets to the idea that that uh, we have to be we can't just assume that traditional values uh, are are the right values, and this is I think there's a certain I think I may have mentioned this before a certain idea that well we can analyze this intellectually better and we can come up with rational grounds. I mean, Peter Singer of Princeton, for example, is always saying it's irrational to assume that human beings have intrinsic value because they're human, in addition to it being speciesist, as I described. And therefore, for him, what is rational is to prevent suffering. And he's a utilitarian. So if if killing, for example, a newborn infant would actually prevent, in his view, suffering in that family, whether it's uh, emotional difficulties or financial difficulties, or even, he, as he has written in his book, Practical Ethics, which is a philosophy book that is... I think taught in most universities, hmm. you can kill a disabled infant so that the next baby to come into the family won't have to uh, have to put up with that uh, infant having disabilities and will hmm. live a happier life. And so there's this there's this real uh, aversion to to the concept of suffering and sacrifice because you t- uh, bioethics has become a utilitarian whether implicitly or explicitly a utilitarian movement. It's a social movement, and in utilitarianism, as I know you know. If what matters is improving human happiness and uh, expanding that and limiting human suffering. That sounds good in the abstract, but if you are deemed one of the causes of mm. suffering, you could be in big trouble. Uh, and that you see quite a bit in bioethics. Uh, there's even a movement, frankly, you need to, uh, your readers or listeners need to hear about this. There's an argument now being made that there's a duty to die. That not all bioethicists are certainly subscribed to this argument. But the idea that if our lives are, are a cause of suffering or burdens, hmm. then we should check out because that's not the right way to live. It's not moral to cause burdens. Well, what I think this is doing is actually trying to strip away that is the, one of the most essential aspects of humanity, which is we care for our sick. We care for our disabled. Yes. We don't uh, expose babies on hills like the Romans used to do because we've grown as a species we understand and have come to some conclusions about the importance of the intrinsic value of human life. I've given this talk, uh, I'm doing a quick segue here a little bit to animal liberation. I've given this talk in many universities and, in, and schools around the country about the need to believe that human life has intrinsic value simply and merely because it's human. Not having to measure it, just it's a given. And I was speaking uh, at a honors high school, and this, after I gave this speech, 
this young girl comes up, and, and very bright, and you know how the earnest way the young are, and she said, you're saying that a human has greater value than a bunny. And I said, yes. And she said, as earnestly as she could, oh, no, no, a bunny is equal to a human because a bunny can feel pain and so can a human. This is another area of attacking the intrinsic value of human life, and mm-hmm. it's in the animal liberation, animal rights movement, which says that being human is not what gives value because to think that is speciesist. They agree with that, that analysis. But they don't think it's the cognitive capacity that matters. It is the capacity to feel pain that matters. Hmm. And so the people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA, uh, and a lot of the other uh, animal liberation groups, as opposed to animal welfare, which you have to distinguish, but they will say that humans and animals are morally equal because animals feel pain and humans feel pain. Therefore, they will say, and if you go, uh, if you paid any attention to people for the ethical treatment of animals, um, they have said in the Holocaust on your plate campaign that, uh, mm. which was pushing vegetarianism, that, and they literally said this, that if you own a leather couch or leather shoes, that is morally equivalent to owning a lamp's uh, shade made of mm. human skin. And they juxtaposed in this campaign pictures of dead pigs next to pictures of dead Jews. Wow. And they, they had... going a little far. They I mean, had, that... you, no kidding. But see, they believe it. They say, literally, that cattle ranching is as bad as human slavery because they have literally created the belief system. And by the way, this explains the terrorism you're now beginning to see coming out of animal liberation. They literally believe that when you see a truck taking cattle to the feedlot, it is no different morally and Mm. ethically than the trains going to Auschwitz. Mm. And so they are taking action, not PETA, but a lot of the uh, people like Animal Liberation Front, Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty, which has uh, created something called tertiary targeting, where they don't only go after the animal laboratories, for example, that do medical testing, but they go after the insurance companies of the medical lab, they go after the the bookkeepers, they go after the uh, auditors and so forth to try to drive this lab out of business. And it got so bad that uh, when the New York uh, Stock Exchange was going to put this lab called Huntington Life Sciences on the New York Stock Exchange, this group published a 100 of the uh, names and addresses and phone numbers of stock exchange executives. They attacked a yacht club where one of the uh, high members had a yacht, and so the New York Stock Exchange didn't list it. Now, that's giving into brown shirtism, but beyond that, understand why these people are willing to engage in such radical tactics is because they have discarded the belief that being human has a special and unique capacity, sometimes called human exceptionalism, and have accepted the idea that we're no better than animals because we feel pain, and therefore doing t- cattle ranching is human slavery, uh, the slaughterhouse is Auschwitz, uh, you know, doing medical experiments on animals before on people to make sure they're safe is the same thing as Mangala. Well, you know, I, I do just want to say one thing, because I do know some people who are active, at least in Los Angeles, in, in PETA, and I don't think that all of them, I mean, I know you were talking about the more radical organizations that were doing the... the but that's um, the PETA philosophy. They may not know it, because PETA, does, PETA has a two-pronged two approach. Number one is they'll do these animal welfare gigs. Animal welfare, the philosophy of animal welfare, says that yes, people have the right to use animals for human benefit, but we have a moral obligation because we are human 
to treat animals as yes. humanely as we possibly can. Yes. I completely support animal welfare. But that is also the reason we have that obligation is because we're exceptional. When your human exceptionalism says that we have special rights as humans, but we also have special duties. Yes. Nobody thinks that the lion has no duty to take down the zebra colt. Nobody thinks that the elephant has the duty to interfere with the lion taking down the zebra colt. <laughs> Nobody thinks that the cat is doing anything wrong when he's tossing the mouse in the air. But we humans go, oh, my gosh, and we, yeah. <laughs> we intervene. That's animal welfare. Animal rights says, and if anybody's a member of PETA and doesn't know this, they better find out about their organization. Animal PETA says we don't have the right to make any use of animals in any way. We don't have the right to eat them. We don't have the right to use them in medical experiments. We don't have the right to ride horses. They're even against seeing eye dogs. And this is what a lot of supporters of PETA don't understand because PETA will do a lot of these very cute um, uh, protest campaigns, for example, the models uh, posing naked to protest the use of fur. Mm-hmm. But, well, the, but a, lot of the, a lot of the supporters of PETA don't know what a yes. subversive organization it really is. Well, I, I think that probably some of the members of PETA don't even realize, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there's a big difference in the, in the uh, composition of PETA with some of them believing in the more yes. radical ideas and I some of them... Agree. The leaders are the radicals, and a lot of the followers just want to be nice to animals, and they don't understand the deeper nature right. and the more subversive approach that their own organization is pursuing. Right. Okay. Well, we have to take another break. When we come back, we'll um, return with my guest, Wesley J. Smith. We're talking today about uh, the end of the old year and bringing in the new and the end of <laughs> the end of uh, humanity, perhaps. <laughs> It's really, um, I think we do need some more contemplation and some more being informed about what some of the things are that people have in mind uh, to make policy. And uh, we can't really sit back and just let the world go on on so many different levels. So uh, it's good that we're starting out the new year by finding out about these things and, and uh, hopefully committing to find out more. We'll, I'll give you the website address again of my guest at the end of the show and um, uh, certainly you can look at the range of books that he has talking about these things that uh, unfortunately do not get talked about enough. So stay tuned, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, 
politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Getterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is voiceamerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Garay, president of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com The world leader in Internet talk radio. Internet talk radio. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Wesley J. Smith. I'll be uh, giving you uh, his website at the end so that you can look. Um, not only does he talk about the various books that he's written, the 11 that he has authored or co-authored, but there's also a section that talks about uh, news, some of the things that he has been working on most recently. And before we, one of the things that you've been working on is the Huang uh, cloning scandal. But before we get to that, I just would like to uh, uh, say something again uh, or just a little more about the um, why these people might be doing what they're doing. And I, I wondered, Turk talking about why um, there, uh, there are these people, uh, such as Peter Singer, thinking essentially what it is, what it reminds me of, you mentioned the Holocaust before in regard to PETA, but it reminds me, before you mentioned that, I was thinking of how it's the Holocaust, deciding um, which, you know, who is fit to live and who, who should die. Well, it's getting back to the old eugenics idea, uh, which was, again, a, uh, a problem of saying that humans aren't intrinsically equal, because in eugenics, which began in the late 1890s, uh, Charles Galton, who was a cousin, I'm sorry, Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin, uh, decided that we should distinguish between the so-called fit and the unfit, and that the fit, people like him, of course, uh, should be encouraged to uh, 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 multiply uh, bountifully, and the unfit here in America, it was called negative eugenics, should be prevented from procreating at all. And so you had in this country between 1909, I think it was, and the early 60s, more than 70,000 people involuntarily uh, sterilized based on these invidious concepts hmm. of uh, being feeble-minded or being a, quote, moron and this kind of thing. Uh, in 1927, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history that I think goes down with Dred Scott said it's called Buck v. Bell, and Carrie Buck was a woman who was a, a daughter of a prostitute who was raped by a foster relative and impregnated, 
and instead of being cared for, she was put in a mental institution mm. as supposedly feeble-minded uh, and was involuntarily sterilized with the okay of Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, who ruled for an eight-to-one court that three generations of idiots is enough. And that is where we head, um, and it can take different, you know, we're not going back to sterilization, but when you say that some humans are not persons, then the next implication is they're less than we are who are persons. Yes. Then the next implication is, well, that means we can use them for our benefit. Yes. And you see now the discussion of organ harvesting yes. or experimenting on the dying or the or, or cognitively devastated and so forth. And when I talked about them pushing for organs, uh, procurement from people in a coma vegetative state, it's not happening. It's being advocated, but I want to make it very clear mm-hmm. that it is not yet happening as far as I am aware. So do you think, I mean, this must in some way, um, how does this connect with, you know, the motivations of the people who are suggesting these things, um, more than suggesting, who are trying to, who, who are bringing about uh, legislation in some cases to, to make these things, to make things like fetal farming okay. Um, how does this connect to the whole ado- abortion, politics, religion well, I think the, there's certainly a political nexus there because uh, a lot of the people who oppose these agendas are against abortion. And that's why the media hates them because the media really disdains people who are pro-life. Little noticed, and, and you saw this certainly in the Shivo case, yeah. uh, was the disability rights people uh, who in the Terry Shivo case were righteous and angry and very uh, involved and engaged in trying to save Terry's life. But the New York Times wouldn't mention them. They would only mention the, the religious pro-lifers because the New York Times is like uh, almost uh, sees things the way the uh, John Birch Society used to, mm-hmm. you know, a fundamentalist under every bed. And so I think the politics of abortion cover the media coverage of this, and a lot of people who are, are not pro-life believe, and it's, wrong, it's a wrong belief in my view, that if they support abortion rights, then they have to, for example, be supportive of cloning. Or they have to, for example, be supportive, supportive of Michael Schiavo in the uh, Schiavo case, because after all, the pro-lifers were against them. But you know what's happening with some folks is they are giving up their own intellectual um, uh, analysis to pro-life people who they disdain. Instead of analyzing it themselves based on their own values, they see that pro-lifers are on one side or the other, and they just automatically take the opposite position. That's giving people you disdain an awful lot of power. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, again, I think part of this, um, part of what gives uh, a lot of these people their power to put through some of these ideas is because it does take a lot of, of explanation and understanding and right. research and, well, reading your books. <laughs> Um, but it does take effort to understand it. It's not something, as I said, that can be just in a quick... I mean, obviously, news programs, um, 60 Minutes, or, or things that look into issues in greater depth could and should do more about but this. But 60 Minutes has an ideological uh, uh, edge, They have, uh, which is fine. I mean, they have their certain acts to grind. And I remember seeing Hugh Hewitt, I think that, that's not his name, that's a radio show host, but the, um, the guy who's, who used to be the head of 60 Minutes, uh, and he was, uh, he presented uh, a, when he put the uh, Thomas Yoke being killed by Jack of Orkin on the air, he was on Larry King, who usually doesn't ask good questions, but he asked this fellow, uh, I forgot his name, um, who was the former producer, well, would you show an execution? 
And he said, absolutely not. I'm against the death penalty. So that, that just shows you the agendas that get on some of these shows mm. reflect the opinions of the yes. people who make them. Now, yes, that's absolutely. not evil, but that's truth. And most of the people who get those positions have a certain worldview that then may look at the at, at people who disagree with them and think, well, this isn't a story, or who might look at me and say, well, gee, he's kind of nutty for bringing this up, even though uh, in my books and in my work I cite actual papers, I can point well, with, I've never been rebutted because I'm very careful. I'm a lawyer, as you pointed out, and I present the evidence of it. Just because it isn't talked about in the public square doesn't mean it's not being uh, really pushed in the uh, in the bioethics elite and in the universities. Dehydrating people with cognitive disabilities, like Terry, for example, was being discussed at length in the 1980s in the journals, in the Hastings Center Report, in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and those kinds of places, and became imposed public policy in the 90s. And once it became the law, well, the American people uh, tend to look at what's legal and say, well, that means it's the same thing as being right. Yes. And then it becomes generally accepted. So what happens in these elite discussions impacts real people in real ways. It's a There's a delayed reaction Yes. But you can look from, and the same thing was true of eugenics. Eugenics was imposed on society from the intellectuals and the, and the cultural elite. And yet they were not the ones being sterilized because they were the ones who thought they were the fit. Yes, exactly. That's what it comes down to. Yes, that, exactly. We the, never see ourselves as the one who are the bad ones. Right. And yet, you know, we have parents who might indeed find themselves uh, in a similar position to Terry Schiavo, not not necessarily her same medical condition, but in a condition where some would say, well, these people can be disposed. They're disposable. That We should harvest them for organs right now. You know, their brain capacity is not as good as ours. Yes, I understand. And that's, uh, so it's closer than you might think, people. <laughs> this is really, um, this is not science fiction anymore. Well, let me give out the website um, to go to, uh, in addition to looking at the titles of the books that Wesley J. Smith has written. You can also see some of his articles on uh, many of these topics that we've been talking about and more. So his website is wesleyjsmith.com. That's W-E-S-L-E-Y-J, the letter J, smith.com. W-E-S-L-E-Y-J, smith, S-M-I-T-H.com. And thank you very much, Wesley, for... Uh, <laughs> for giving us a feast, actually, for starting off the new year with a feast, an intellectual feast. And um, <laughs> and while we can still uh, contemplate these things, and should be... Um, you know, when I give a speech, people have a hard time deciding to put me before or after the meal because either <laughs> I ruin appetites or I ruin digestion. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, it's certainly, <laughs> uh, it, it certainly you've um, shocked me with, with a lot of these well, uh, now you'll now now I hope your listeners will start looking around, and you can see the influence of this kind of thinking everywhere in a lot of these stories. But if you don't know that kind of thinking is there, yes. it's invisible. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess the Terry Schiavo case was the first opportunity I, I had to see just how the media was not putting forth uh, the side uh, to be for saving her life as much as they were the opposite. That was a lesson that I had, but. Um, it kind of it, it's going beyond that to so many other areas that uh, we each need to be informed. We find before we find our place, our, our place, 
ourselves replaced by a clone and not understand how that happened. So again, Wesley J. Smith at WesleyJSmith.com. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening. Again, Happy New Year. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on VoiceAmerica.com. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 